So we're going to look at 25 verses. This is a really fascinating chapter. You'll see the entirety of the chapter to be covered this morning. But, but before that, I just want to share with you that um, I had the unexpected opportunity. Matt was originally scheduled to go, but obviously couldn't. Um, the opportunity to go to Boston this past week with a small group from our church. We, we try to always send a team of any size up there to participate in a thing called the Big Move. I think it'd probably be helpful here if, if you're not familiar with the Big Move, if you've not uh, heard of it before, there are two things you kind of need to know when I talk about Boston. The first is that, that we at Perkinsville, we partner with Kings Hill Church, and Kings Hill is a four-year-old church plant that we've been with since the very beginning. So we send teams twice a year, at least spring break for college teams, uh, and then over the course of the summer too. But here's what else you need to know about the city of Boston that's pretty interesting. 70% of the apartments in that city have lease turnovers, which is move out and move in. And they do it all on the same day. Some people do it like a day earlier. So, uh, But 70% of the apartments in that city have a lease turnover on September 1st. And so there are literally students from all over the country and across the street trying to move in. And those buildings are old and they don't have elevators. Uh, and so that Kings Hill Church saw a real opportunity several years ago to, to a vision of what if the church could wear blue shirts that simply say others over self with a Kings Hill logo and you walk all the streets of the city of Boston and you literally offer to carry boxes upstairs for people. And it is a phenomenal way to really engage with students and parents who really feel like they ought to pay, need to pay, should pay, whatever it is, just to simply say we're doing this simply because we want to welcome you to the city of Boston. We want to let you know that you are loved and we do this in the name of Jesus Christ. So we did that for, uh, for, for a day and then, of course, uh, did some other things too. But, but when you're in Boston, you, you have to look around and you have to almost come to an appreciation of, uh, of the city as it stood really as, a, as such a formative place in the birth of this nation. Jonathan Mosley, who, who's the teaching pastor at Kings Hill, often says that, that, that New York is the financial capital of the world. If Wall Street has a good day, the world's financial markets have a good day. And then he says D.C. is the political capital of the world. Whatever happens in Washington, D.C. sets the tone and the pace for politics across the globe. And he says if those things are true, Boston is the cultural capital of the world. And he makes that point by saying that, that the majority of Supreme Court justices spend at least a year, if not their entire graduate experience, in Boston. People like Mark Zuckerberg and the makers of tomorrow's culture are in Boston's universities today. And so if we look at the, the theme and the future of the world, Boston is the strategic place. This was also the place where Harvard was placed. And Harvard was put in Boston, and I quote, to train ministers for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the place where the first great awakening in America really took off, where the Holy Spirit lit the fire in an awakening that would move throughout the eastern seaboard and ultimately west. This is, this is the place where it happened. And still, as you travel the city of Boston, you see these, these inscriptions on stone in public libraries and historic buildings referencing this, this once central theme of the gospel's significance on daily life. But today in Boston, only 3% of the population would identify as a born-again Christian. It's a city where Christianity is really only marked kind of by historical markers. Faith in Boston is now merely a part of its formation. It's rarely considered a part of its future. But this isn't just Boston. This is every city in the West. This is every town. 
This every campus, this is our town, this is our community, this is our campus. It's not just Boston, it's maybe just more pronounced there. And globally, Islam is by far the fastest growing religion in the world. And every American generation, according to the, at least the way they respond, is becoming more and more secular. And so if you look at kind of the global setting of Christianity, of gospel advancement, you can almost look at the statistics. You can look at cities like Boston or towns like Boone. And there is a moment in time where you can feel despair. There's maybe even a feeling, although we would never say this in our Sunday school responses, that God is losing. The church is failing. Jesus has become nothing more than a name amongst many other names. Now, I know that you probably would never say God is losing because you're a good Christian. And you know, theologically, that's impossible. But practically, you probably think it. I mean, how could you not? And I think that idea and, and the overwhelming reality and the fear that's, that's becoming a part of Christian life, this is why we need a text like the book of Acts, but specifically this morning, Acts chapter 12. We need this text because this passage, this, this chapter almost seems like an interruption in what Luke is doing in the book of Acts. It almost, it almost seems like a commercial break. Here, here's a word from our sponsor, Peter. Like that's the way it feels. And as I look back, you realize that we've seen God's glory. We've seen God's jealousy for his glory. That's the way the Bible describes his feeling. We've seen these things kind of as undercurrents, but there hasn't been a point in Acts where we really get this point like, wow, God's glory will be known. Like no matter what the world throws at the church, God's glory will be known. We don't lose. He doesn't lose. It's not going to happen. And so I think we need this reminder that, that God's glory can't be stopped. And so let's just look at this chapter. Let's understand this just, it's a, it's a crazy amount of stuff. Literally in Acts chapter 11, look at the last verse of Acts chapter 11. It's the church at Antioch. And you remember this from, from last week. And it says, and the church at Antioch decided to send to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul relief because there would be a famine in the land. That's how chapter 11 ends. So Barnabas and Saul are going away. And literally Luke kind of takes us. And meanwhile, this is happening. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter, excuse me, about the time Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, verse 1 is where we're starting, by the way. About, the, about that time, this is when Paul and Barnabas go off, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out of, to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. I had to believe that Herod had memory of Jesus' escape. They posted two centurions to the tomb. He's like, That's not gonna, that ain't going to happen here. I'm putting four squads around this guy. That's kind of the imagery you have here. So now when Herod was about to bring him out, that very night Peter was just sleeping between two soldiers. They're not letting this guy spend any time alone. There's two soldiers. He's sandwiched between them. There's four squads all around him. That's the imagery. Bound with two chains and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And Luke's not a fluffy guy. He's a scientist. He's telling you like it is. Here are the facts, sir. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains just fell off his hands. 
And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Peter constantly requires convincing, doesn't he? Like it's at the city gate. He's like, oh, this is real. (laughs) When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Don't you love that? She is so overwhelmed, she forgets to open the door. That is beautiful. And Rhoda, just being a Greek word for rose, rhododendrons, that's the beauty of this moment. There's, there's comedy in here, don't forget that. Like, Luke, does, Luke doesn't miss that point. This girl is so excited, she forgets to open the door for him. So they said to her, Rhoda, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting this was so. They kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last." But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. She loved the bookend. Like, imagine being Paul and Barnabas. What happened while we were gone? What did we miss? Oh, (laughs) let me tell you. So, Father, as we open your word and see just the beauty of of spirit-given resilience and the beauty of spirit-given conviction and the beauty even of spirit-given justice. We find and see your glory in this, and we pray that your glory would shine upon us and through us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we could easily say that the early church grew because culture was so easy and so ripe and ready for it to grow, but here's a guy named Herod. It's a fascinating situation. I was reminded when I opened this, this chapter immediately to Acts chapter 5. And when you, if you, many of you weren't here whenever we, we were there, but that's early in the church's movement. And the Jewish uh, people are the ones who are hearing the gospel and they're seeking to stop it. And Ananias and Sapphira were killed. And that creates a lot of issues for the church. And so the council comes together and says, let's kill all these Christians. Let's be done with them. And uh, it says that a Pharisee named G- uh, Gamaliel 
stood up and said these words. He essentially said, listen, y'all, quit, being, quit acting so quickly. If this is just a man-made effort, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fizzle out. It's going to die off. He says, but, but if this is of God, if what is happening in Jerusalem is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And you will even find yourself opposing God. Like, I, I was immediately taken back to the, the prophecy of Acts chapter 5 in that moment. If it's a man, guess what's going to happen to it? It's going to die. It's going to die a, a quick death relative to human history. All that we're experiencing right now in society and culture, if it is of man, it's going to die. It's going to go away. It's a, it's a, this, this is the, the vaporous living to which we're called. Because this prophecy way back in Acts chapter 5 that we see coming to life is something that, that, that the Jewish people would have understood about their God. David in Psalm 20 says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. This is nothing new for them. They understood that as, as overwhelming and as oppressive and as, as seemingly victorious as the armies of men, the chariots of men may, may feel and even be at moments in time, we do not trust in those things. We do not trust in chariots and some horses. We trust in the name of the Lord. But really, I ask, how do we see God's glory being made known? Because that's a theme throughout all of Scripture. If it is of God, how do we know this to be true? Let's look first at Herod back at the text this morning, reminding you that as much as they feel like they're in charge, as much authority as earthly kings and earthly rulers and earthly movements and earthly philosophies feel like they're really making an impact and a dent in culture, they're not in charge. No, Herod's not in charge. Let's, let's look at Herod. Herod uh, is a fascinating guy whose power from like 41 to 44 AD just continually grew. Um, he got, by the way, his grandfather, do you remember back uh, when Jesus was born, there was another Herod on the throne over King Herod overseeing Jerusalem, and he ordered that every boy be killed because he had heard that Messiah had been born, the line of the King of David. This, that's this guy's grandpa right? So he grew up. Tell me stories about grandpa. Well, this one time your grandpa had every boy killed in Jerusalem. I mean, that's the kind of culture and the family to which this Herod was born. But this Herod was on kind of dicey grounds. He, he wasn't well respected necessarily because he was friends with Caesar. He was friends with the emperor. And this was one of those backroom deals. Hey, Herod, you want to be king of the Jews? Literally what he would be called king of the Jews. You want to be king of the Jews? How about I give you this? So, so Herod understood that he really had to appease one people group if he was their king, the Jewish people. And so this guy is walking around on eggshells, thinking he's in charge the whole time. But even from an earthly level, his authority is limited in scope. This guy will do anything he can to win favor with the people. So he kills James. Look at the text. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And he's looking around like this jealous little kid who happens to have a crown on his head. Kills James, and the Jewish people are applauding. He goes, oh, I see that it pleased the people. Let's do this again. Let's go get Peter because he's kind of the lead apostle. Oh, but it's the Feast of the Unleavened, so I can't behead him today. Or I can't stick a sword through his gut today. If he wanted to kill him to the Jewish right, it'd be a, behead, or it'd be a, it'd be a sword through the gut. The Roman way would have been a beheading. So he sees that it pleases the people. Let me just make the people happier. Let me go take Peter and put him in prison. But he, he doesn't care about the people. It's not, he doesn't, 
he doesn't really care about them and what they want. He's just concerned with his own popularity, his own foothold on power, his perception amongst people. That's who this Herod fella is, and that's the lesson that ultimately people in their own power do anything and everything to hold on to that power. So we kind of leave him for a moment and see this miraculous deliverance from prison, and then we return to Herod at the very end. So he has traveled away. He's spending some time, and now Tyre and Sidon, and we're getting this final scene of the passage today. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of interesting. So Tyre and Sidon were these, trade, these port cities, right? And they, 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 they were the key to a lot of the economic flow in and out of this region. And they depended upon Herod's finances to fund their operations. And so literally, they're going to him saying, hey, can we get a little more money? That's what's happening here. It sounds kind of weird, but that's all that's happening. And, and so he decides he's going to stand up and give an oration. So the guy puts on his robe. This is so gooberish, too. Like, if you think about it historically, he stands up. He goes, no, I will not give them. He's just... Men are big boys who haven't yet grown up, and that's kind of what this guy is. So he's going to puff his chest, beat on his chest, and he's going to tell them, no, I'm not. And then the people in their idolatry says, this, just so you know, if you're questioning this tyrant side on, this is the voice of God, not of a man. He doesn't rebuke them. The dude is struck dead, and don't you love the grace of his death? He is eaten up by worms and rots away. Josephus is a historian who wrote on this who said that Herod... We don't know this, but Herod had sharp stomach pains leading up to this death. It is though there are internal parasites literally starting to eat away his innards before he is ultimately killed. What a gracious and humbling way to be reminded you're not in charge, Herod. He's not in charge. I hope that you're making these connections right now. I, I don't know about world leaders being eaten up by worms. But I hope you understand that the most heinous, the most controversial, the meanest, the worst ruler in all of creation still has a heart that can be squeezed and controlled like streams of water by our God. I want you to remember this morning, when you get overwhelmed and do this, with all the world ends, the world is coming to an end. If we don't do this, if they don't do that, if this doesn't happen, we are doomed. Is that our God's glory will not go silent. I want you to understand that the world will not cease to be because of one earthly king or even ten. They only think they're in charge. God's glory is on display and will be made known in every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, and every generation because God always gets the glory. He always gets the glory. In this story, isn't it fascinating how we have the commercial break almost just to say, in every one of these seemingly very different situations, the situation with James, the situation with Peter, and even the situation with Herod, in very different ways, God always gets the glory. And obviously, he's reminding Herod, the greatest challenge Herod has is that he loves glory too, because all people love glory. This is what Satan offered to Eve. Don't you want to be like God? 
Don't you want a little slice of that, of that glory? Don't you want some of that? But let's just ask a question real quick before we keep moving. Is it fair for God to get all the glory? I know the Sunday school answer right here is yes. Of course it is. He's good. Herod's bad. Well, yeah, I mean, that's true. But, but, but look at Isaiah 42, 8. This is one example. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He says, I don't share what I have. Now, in John 17, by the way, if you're ever speaking to a Jehovah's Witness who says that they're not God, Jesus actually says, even though God says, I don't share my glory, Jesus says, share with me the glory. Give me the glory. Let me see the glory that I shared with you since before creation. It's a pretty cool defense of this idea as a complete aside. God doesn't share his glory with any other. Numbers 20, 25 teaches, I'm not, uh, you read this, Numbers 25 teaches that God is jealous for his glory. Like, is that fair? I mean, doesn't that seem conceited or hypocritical? Or how do we explain why God gets the glory and he can be jealous for his glory? Like, how do we explain that well? So Matt was planning to preach today. Something happened. I don't know what happened. He's, you know, small little issue. But he, he shared some thoughts, and one of them that was particularly, I think, pertinent and really beautiful is the way in which he thought about God's jealousy and rightful ownership of his own glory. So just imagine with me that you are a coach of a basketball team, and you have one minute to play, and you're behind like five or six or seven points. doesn't really matter. You have quite a squad to choose from. Michael Jordan's on your team. Isn't that cool? That's awesome. <laughs> uh, everybody knows Michael Jordan, whether you like NBA, whether you watch basketball, whether you know if it's round or what even the shape. It doesn't matter. You know Michael Jordan. You need him. And what you don't want is for Michael Jordan to back down. You don't want him giving some excuse, some fake humble answer saying, no, 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 I'm not that good. Put somebody else. That's not what you want Michael Jordan to do. You want him to own his talent. You want him to lean into it, not out of it. That'd be ridiculous. You don't want him recommending another player to make the play. You want Michael Jordan to embrace this moment, to embrace his skill, to embrace his goodness, not to hide it or play it down. That's not true humility. All y'all people who take your spiritual gifts and you go, oh, that's just, you know. No, God has given you those gifts for his glory, so quit saying, no, I don't do that. Like, yes, lift it up, but that's exactly what you want Michael Jordan to do in this moment. He is the best, and he doesn't need to hide it, does he? Why should he hide he's the best basketball player in the history of the sport? That would be stupid. That would be stupid. So please let Michael Jordan play because he is the best and he knows it. And he knows it because it actually represents truth. Like he's not just some fool out there who can't dribble a ball saying, I'm the best basketball player in the history of the sport. He actually is. There is truth behind the belief. Don't put in the scrub who thinks he's the best. Don't put in the scrub. He just wants the glory. And he doesn't have what it takes. He just thinks that he does. His talent is not based on truth. We call this pride. So, our God, I don't think he should shrink back at all. 
I don't think you should step back and say, you know, I'm pretty glorious, but I think at this time maybe someone else should step in. Michael Jordan shouldn't shrink back. The best surgeon like Matt had this past week shouldn't shrink back, nor should the best at anything shrink back. Step up and do your best because it's a fact. And so it would, it would be hypocritical for God to sit back and say, oh, my glory is really awesome. It's actually the greatest glory in all of eternity, but I'm just going to step away from that. No, no, this God, our God, the one who speaks, the one who controls, the one who Herod just wants to be so badly, the one every one of us aim after and seek after whether we know it or not, this is an infinite God, an immutable God, a self-sufficient God, an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, perfectly wise and unchanging God, faithful and good and just and merciful and gracious and loving and holy and glorious in perfection. So why would he step back from that? Why would he not be jealous for that? That people know it. He always gets the glory because he is the best. And if God does not claim it, that means that there is someone greater than him. But knowing that there is no one greater than him, God is just and right in claiming the glory every single time. And he's not afraid to show it. This is our God. This is the God who not only sits on the throne, the creator and maker and sustainer of the heavens, but the God who looks upon you in Christ Jesus and knows your name and your favorite food and your least favorite food and the sins you try to hide from everybody and the gifts he gave you and the hairs on your head and the things that frustrate you when you get annoyed with other people. He knows that too, and he cares deeply for you in Christ. This is not just the God out there. This is our God who controls it. So do you speak? Do you think like that in the midst of a spiraling world? Do you? Answer the question. The feelings of the heart and the gut when you see what's happening in our world and you just want to bow your head down in shame and say, I can't believe it. Do you know this God who will receive his glory? Isaiah 43 verse 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made for his glory. And so what he does in the early church is unmistakable in so many ways. But in the context of this passage, he delivers Peter from prison. He turns Herod over to death. If this wasn't of God, it would have certainly failed. But as Acts chapter 5 says, if it is of God, opponents will lose and the apostles will be freed. That's what we see coming to life here. This is our God and it is undeniably all about his glory. But what about James? What about James? You know, we could preach that all day long, couldn't we? You want to have deliverance and freedom, and we could get into all those traditions. Say it right now. Claim his glory. But what happens? James is dead. How do we deal with that one? We just kind of ignore it. Close the Bible. That was enough for today. That was sweet. We're going to ignore that one. Because God's glory means that I get freed. God's glory means that my opponents will die. What if God's glory means you will die? What if it means that? James. This is James, the son of thunder, is what Jesus called him. You're the son of thunder. He's dead. He was, he was beheaded or, or, or had a sword go through his gut. James, James's death is very different. This is a different James than you read of later, right? In the same passage. This is James, the son of thunder. How do we reconcile that? One story illustrates his glory in life. Peter's deliverance 
And one story illustrates God's glory in death, James's death. It's not just how we live, it's how we die. When we know that this is our God and it's all about His glory, then His glory will be known by our life and by what? Our death. Sometimes the glory of God brings release, and sometimes it brings the sword. As a church, we're so squirmish about the latter, and I get it. If I have the option between the two, ten times out of ten, I'm taking release. But I just wonder, in our efforts to conform culture to think more like Jesus, void of the gospel, are we really just afraid of the sword? We'll live for God's glory, but will we die for His glory? Sometimes the glory of God brings release and sometimes it brings the sword, but if it is of God, it is His glory. This is the fundamental difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. If you're in Christ, you win. If you're in Christ, you get His glory. Death or life. You get His unhindered, fully undeserved glory, and you get it for the rest of eternity. Whether you get release or the sword, God's glory will be made known. And so as I conclude this today, I think back to Boston. It's easy for me to walk across the streets of Boston and through the neighborhoods and talk to literally students from all over the world at Northeastern University or MIT or any of the hundreds of universities and colleges in the Boston metro area, and it's easy for me to feel like the gospel is losing. But there in the middle of that city, on Friday afternoon, there were about 120 believers in blue t-shirts in a little city park, a beautiful knoll right there surrounded by public transportation and universities and buildings and people just rushing through their day. I found myself singing, and I found a lady named Katie Stubbs leading us in worship and a guy named Jacob playing guitar, those precious folks sent from here about a year ago. And on that knoll, with 120 people in a city of over 800,000 in a metro area of millions, God got His glory. The Bible has only promised a remnant. And so maybe we ought to set our eyes on what God is doing, rather than where it always seems like He's losing Maybe we ought not to be scared. God will get his glory. Because when James was killed and Peter was arrested, when Saul ravaged the church, and even throughout history when the world sought to kill, steal, and destroy, God has gotten his glory. Because this gospel truth will endure. And so I simply say this. If what you do in life is made on anything other than God, it will fail. 
If anything in your life to this point has been built on anything other than Christ, it will crumble. And if your hopes and your future are founded on anything other than God's glory, they will drift away as swiftly as a vapor. But if your life is of God, He will get the glory because He is our God and we are His people. And so, Father, we trust in You for the tumultuous waves of culture. We trust in You for tomorrow. We trust in You and Your wisdom, but more even than Your wisdom, Your infinite, unchanging, assuring glory that those of us called out as Your children by Christ and through the blood of Christ, that no matter what the future holds, as we often say in almost a cliche way, Father, we rely not on the tides and the turning of a society that is confused and broken and seeking and reaching and feeling for truth, yet quickly eroding. That we are your people, and you are our God, and you will get the glory in our release and in our death. I pray, Father, as we wrestle with such a truth this morning and surely for the rest of our lives that we all are confidently approaching the throne of grace because we have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if there is a person in the midst of this space this morning by your Spirit, draw them to the goodness of Jesus that they too may know of the infinite glory of our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.